Africa. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited about this. I imagine you'll have a couple more people drop in over the next few minutes, but whatever they miss, uh, that's um, uh, their problem to reckon with morally. Uh, so, so thanks again, and, and the stage is all yours. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you folks. I'm a pretend computer scientist. I uh, never got an undergraduate degree, but I do have an honorary doctorate in computer science from Open University in the UK, where I'm a visiting professor. And my local connection to you all is I'm uh, also a, a research affiliate at the Media Lab, which thus far, or in the last couple of years, has meant exactly nothing in terms of my duties or in terms of my connection, but it's still there. So I, I feel a, a distant, tenuous thread to, to Cambridge and Boston. Uh, so with all that said, uh, today's talk is adapted from a book proposal uh, that Verso, I think, has just bought. Uh, they're finalizing stuff with my agent, but it's it's called uh, Seize the Means of Computation, which is also the name of the, the talk. And it kind of tries to pull together the strings of a bunch of policy work I've been doing, some of which goes all the way back 20 years to my first day on the job at EFF. Yesterday was... Uh, formally my 20th anniversary with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I actually started a couple of weeks before that, but uh, there was because there was stuff that needed doing, but I wasn't on the payroll until 20 years ago yesterday. So I'll start by saying that this is not uh, this that this is a, a talk for people who want to destroy big tech. It's not a talk about how we can make big tech better. I don't think we should try to make big tech better. I don't even think that's our job. I think if big tech wants to make itself better, then by all means, off it should go. But I don't want to redeem it. I want to get rid of it. Uh, and I should also point out that this is not a talk for people who want to get rid of technology itself. This is not an anti-technology talk. I don't think technology is the problem. I think people who think that technology is the problem spend way too much time thinking about what technology does and not enough time thinking about who it does it for and who it does it to, the, the social relations around technology. I think that's the most kind of science fictional way to approach technology, what would a different social arrangement for it look like? And I, I wrote a recent essay for the trade magazine of the science fiction industry, Locus magazine, called Science Fiction as a Luddite, Luddite Literature, in which I tried to uh, rehabilitate the Luddites, who after all, didn't dislike looms any more than, you know, Osama bin Laden disliked airplanes. They, they their smashing looms was, was a project uh, around uh, demanding a different social relation, one that they actually lost. Uh, so what this is a talk about uh, is the thing that big tech fears the most, which is not rules about how it should behave itself, but about a world in which technology is primarily operated by and for the people who use it. So the barons of today's technology, including your former uh, uh, city mate, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they like to style themselves as, as evil geniuses. But having been around the tech industry now for good 30 years, I'm prepared to say that the people who run the tech uh, companies of today are not uh, evil. Their ambitions to world domination aren't particularly novel in the field. The founders of AltaVista and DEC and Sun Microsystems and Commodore, they all talk the same line about owning the future of computation. Uh, the difference between the today's tech barons and those tech barons of yesteryear is that today's tech barons actually did manage to take control of the future of computation. But I want to say that despite that, I don't think they did it because they're geniuses. 
the reason the tech industry uh, before them spent industries spent generations churning with new companies and systems supplanting old ones was that in the olden days, it wasn't that computers were different. It was that competition law was different. We used to enforce competition law in a profoundly different way than the way that we do today. Uh, for example, we used to ban companies from buying or merging with their major competitors. We also used to ban companies from creating vertical monopolies where they controlled key elements of their supply chain. The new crop of leaders that, that have taken control of technology aren't being displaced, but it's not because of their leadership and vision. It's because 40 years ago, we shot antitrust law in the guts, and for the last 40 years, it has been bleeding out all around us as these companies uh, that are led by mediocre idiots who are no smarter than me or you were able to uh, establish monopolies that their forebears were not able to establish despite their desire to do so. These donkeys not only established monopolies, but they were able to parlay the winnings from their monopolies into policies that prevent new technologies from springing up that supplant theirs. In other words, they are now in a position where they get to decide who competes with them and how. Notably, the thing that tech giants are able to do today that they were never able to do before is wield uh, the law against interoperators, new technologies that can plug into their existing services, systems, and platforms. And that's a privilege that none of yesteryear's easily toppled giants actually had. You know, IBM spent years waging war on the so-called seven dwarves. These were the seven mid-sized companies that, pro that produced uh, peripherals, printers, storage media, uh, and software for IBM's mainframe business. But to make that work, they weren't able to sue those companies. They had to try and make reverse engineering proof mainframes. And for complex reasons that I actually imagine you are much better at explaining than I am, this is impossible. You know, this these bedrock ideas from computer science, these ideas named for these mid-century computing demigods like von Neumann machines and Turing completeness dictate that the creation of non-operable, non-interoperable computers is a fool's errand. In other words, it's fantasy and not science fiction. It's more like a time machine or a faster-than-light device and not like a, a thing that we can actually build. It makes for a good story, but it's not a thing that we should build policy around. So of course, today's tech giants, they haven't invented an interop-proof computer. What they've invented is something far more insidious. They've invented laws that make it illegal to do interoperability without their permission. A new and complex thicket of copyright, patent, trade secret, non-compete, and other IP rights have sprung up to conjure a new offense into existence, one that's not on any statute book, but which is nevertheless pervasive in the way that the industry conducts itself. Something that we can think of as maybe felony contempt of business model, the right of large firms to dictate how their customers, competitors, and their critics must use and relate to their products. So why is it that the tech giants are so dedicated to snuffing out interoperability? I think it's because that interoperability lowers switching costs. Whenever economists gather to hand wave away the rise of big tech as an historical in inevitability, they make frequent reference to this idea called network effects. This is an economist's term of art for a product that gets valuable every time it gets a new customer. 
you joined Facebook because the people you wanted to chat with were already there, making Facebook more valuable to you. And once you joined Facebook, people who wanted to talk to you found Facebook more valuable and they joined it too. All of you make Facebook more valuable. And that's true up and down the stack for every single one of the tech giants, no matter what their business model is. You know, every time someone makes an app for the iPhone, that's a reason for a customer to buy an iPhone. Every time there's a new customer who buys an iPhone, that's a market that you can make an app for. But network effects, although they are powerful engines for growth, are merely how technology gets big. It's not how it stays big. The way that technology stays big is with high switching costs. So switching costs, they're another term of art from the economics trade. It's everything that you have to give up when you stop using a product or a service. You know, if you quit Facebook, you'll lose the family photos you've uploaded and you'll lose access to the friends, family, community, and the customers that you hang out with there. When the switching costs are high enough, people keep on using products and services, even though they hate those products and services. So long as the pain of leaving is higher than the pain of staying, then your users will stay. And for firms, this makes high switching costs extremely attractive because generally speaking, if you can treat your customers worse, you can make more money, right? If, if you have free license to abuse your customers, which, you know, again, to use Facebook as an example, to show them more ads, to show them more abusive ads, to invest less in anti-harassment and anti-spam uh, uh, tools and so on, the, the worse things are for the customers, the less you have to spend on making them happy, uh, the more money you get to retain. And if the switching costs are high enough, you can treat them monotonically worse. Now, there's a corollary to that, which is that the lower that switching costs are, the better a company has to treat you if they want to keep your business. So if users who quit Facebook, who resign their account and delete their app, can still talk to their Facebook friends through a rival service that can interchange messages with Facebook and keep up those social relations that they're on Facebook for, then Facebook would be in serious trouble. And of course, what Interop does is lower switching costs. Interop allows us, the users of technology, to set the terms by which we use those technologies. Again, we should stop paying so much attention to what technology does and who it does it for and who it does it to. Interoperability allows us to pick and mix. We get to use the parts of the products and services that benefit us. We get to block the parts that don't. Now, there are a lot of things that we should absolutely fix about big tech. We should change the rules for mergers. We should pass comprehensive privacy legislation. It's shocking that the United States does not have a federal privacy law. We should ban deceptive dark practices. We should break up these big companies into smaller competing firms. But all of that stuff, that's a long run project. To give you a sense of how long, the first time the US tried to break up AT&T was 69 years before the US actually broke up AT&T. So we got to get some stuff moving now while we're waiting the years and years and years it's going to take for us to dismantle these giants. And I think interop is it. If we make it legal for new technologies to plug into existing ones, that is if we make it legal to blast holes in the walled gardens, then the users, which is us, get immediate profound relief. Relief from manipulation and high-handed moderation and surveillance and price gouging, disgusting and misleading algorithmic uh, suggestions, that whole panoply of technology sins. Now, I want to get into a little um, two-part taxonomy of different kinds of interoperability that we can imagine. And the first part is widely adopted formal standards. And the second is guerrilla warfare, uh, reverse engineering and bots and scraping and so on. 
And I'll talk a little about the legislative and judicial history of uh, the war on interop, and I'll describe the diversity of tactics, commercial, legal, technical, and social, that we can use to foster interop. And I'll explain how a well-constructed interop policy is sturdy enough to beat the attacks against it, whether they're legal, technical, social, or commercial. I think that these are shovel-ready ideas, and that they're a means to dismantle big tech's control over our digital lives and devolve control to the people who suffer most from big tech's hegemony. Marginalized users, low-level tech workers, people who live downstream of tech's exhaust plume, people choking on toxic waste from the tech industry, and people, very saliently today, living under dictatorships whose control is maintained with off-the-shelf cyber weapons used to hunt down opposition figures. So let's start with um, how big tech got big. So until about 40 years ago, for about the first 80, 90 years of antitrust law in the United States, the, uh, the standard by which antitrust law functioned was something called harmful dominance. And it was articulated really by the, the senator who wrote the first antitrust law, John Sherman, who passed the Sherman Act in 1890. And when, when Sherman was giving his speech to Congress, exhorting them to vote for his act, he said that we would not endure a king of industry to set prices and control the things that we need to live any more than we endured the king who lived across the Atlantic and tried to tell us how to live our lives. So really he was describing antitrust as a political project with this kind of frank recognition that when firms are concentrated, that they get two benefits that redound to the public's detriment. The first is that they get it, it's easier to, so, to uh, solve their collective action problem, to decide what they want to do. You know, people look at that photo of the tech leaders around the table with Donald Trump in 2017 after the election, and they go, oh, how can these, you know, paragons of liberal thought and progressive causes sit down with this thug? And that's, you know, fair enough, but I think we should be far more alarmed by the fact that they all fit around one table. And, you know, anyone who has ever tried to organize a big group knows that if an industry is composed of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of SMEs, that they won't even be able to decide on how to cater their lunch at their annual meeting, much less what their common lobbying position should be. And because they can solve that common lobbying position, then anything that they have that, that they can throw at the lobbying problem is much more uh, force multiplied, right? There, there's a lot more control because you don't have defectors in your midst uh, who are saying, actually, tech doesn't need that. And the thing that monopoly gets you is monopoly rents, right? It gets you uh, super normal profits because you can gouge your customers and you can squeeze your suppliers and you can squeeze your workforce. And all of that comes together to allow you to accomplish the policy goals that you want. And those policy goals tend to be, first and foremost, making it easier to form monopolies. For example, uh, creating special tax regimes that are only, only redound to very large firms. So uh, everybody who's not a giant firm fights with one arm tied behind their back because they've got a 30% annual tax bill and the big firms have got no annual tax bill. We see that today with the largest firms insisting that all of their profits are realized in a state of grace uh, 200 miles off the coast of Ireland in a non-taxable no man's land. Um, and you know that is not a thing that's available to you and me if we were to go and start an LLC and go into business consulting uh, in fields that competed with these firms. So for the longest time, that was the basis for antitrust law. And under the harmful dominance standard, lots of people got a say in how we enforce antitrust law. You could show up 
when there was uh, consideration of antitrust enforcement action and talk about how it affected you as a worker, as a customer, as someone who lived in the neighborhood of the factory and saw how it changed your, your uh, neighborhood and the character of your life. Everybody had something to say about the qualitative experience of life under a monopoly. And then in the early 1980s, we saw a revolution in antitrust thought that was part of the wider revolution in economic thought, what's often called the neoliberal revolution. It was promulgated by the Chicago School of Economics. And you know the person who is most closely associated with their antitrust project is a guy called Robert Bork. You may have heard of being Borked. Uh, that's Robert Bork. Uh, Robert Bork was, um, he was an economist. He was a kind of heterodox economist. He had been Nixon's solicitor general and had overseen the Saturday Night Massacre. Reagan tried to get him on the Supreme Court and the Senate balked at it. This is what it means to be borked because he showed up and they just asked him a bunch of embarrassing questions. And he was basically laughed out of the room and denied his, his, uh, his tenure on the bench. But he did something I think far more profound than any Supreme Court judge could have, which is that he revolutionized the way that we regulate corporations for the worse. Um, Bork had this bizarre conspiracy theory that if you went back and you reread the four foundational antitrust statutes that make up US law, that despite the fact that the people who wrote these statutes were incredibly clear in their speeches and writing about why they thought these statutes should exist, and even though the statutes themselves are really unambiguous, that everybody had it wrong. That if you were to read the text as though they were kind of Gnostic texts, you know, with that kind of QAnon uh, 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 approach where you're just trying to tease out hidden meanings, that you would find that they never, ever wanted to um, get rid of harmful dominance, that the only thing that they cared about was that um, monopolies would not be allowed to do inefficient things, that monopolies were by their nature efficient because they got rid of what, what is often called in these circles, wasteful competition. As Peter Thiel says, competition is for losers. And they replaced it with a, a single streamlined operation where the kind of the heroic will of a super genius could direct the power of a, of a conglomerate that uh, controlled all parts of its supply chain and the uh, adjacent industries to create something of enormous value. Um, if this sounds familiar, you may have been listening to the arguments for why Amazon is okay. You know, you, we, we have this logistics chain, we have this warehouse chain, we can combine our data centers with our uh, buying power and so on, and we can deliver stuff to you that's cheaper and better than you would get under any other regime. And moreover, Bork said that um, most monopolies are efficient and that uh, aggressive antitrust enforcement would yield uh, these, these great penalties to our society, that we'd lose the benefit of all this efficiency by trying to keep companies from becoming too strong. And instead he counseled that um, firms uh, should only be blocked from monopolistic conduct, such as mergers or you know, uh, predatory pricing or uh, moving into uh, adjacent lines of business to create potential vertical monopolies, that this conduct should only be blocked when there is uh, empirical mathematical proof that it would result in an inefficient arrangement. And the way that you could determine that empirical mathematical proof was to build these abstract models that were invented at the University of Chicago and that only economists from the University of Chicago knew how to build and which inevitably showed that monopoly was fine, just fine. And um, I like to think of this as like a, a kind of creation of a court sorcerer class where, you know, the king has his court and people come to him with petitions. They say, you know, things are suboptimal for my oxen. 
and uh, the, he consults the sorcerer and the sorcerer says, well, let's find out what the gods say about the arrangements by which we have the oxen. So he takes one of those oxes and he slits it open. He spreads his guts across the floor and he looks at those steaming guts and he pronounces what the gods want and what the gods want is whatever the king wanted. Um, and so the, the, he then says, well, the, the king says that things are fine. Uh, you must be mistaken about how things are going for your ox. And the, if the poor ox farmer, the herder were to say, well, I've looked at those guts and that's not what I see. The court sorcerer can go, look who thinks he knows how to read the guts of an ox. Did you go to the university of Chicago? You know? And so, uh, with, with this revolution, we saw an absolute shift in the way that all of our industries are regulated, not just tech. And this is one of the things that I want to talk about is that there's a form of tech exceptionalism that I think is misplaced that says that tech is particularly evil or uh, particularly venal or run by particularly smart people. And that's why it's as concentrated as it is. But if that's the case, it doesn't explain why every other industry is as concentrated as it is. You know, all of the world's shipping is now controlled by four consortia. You may have heard the president mention this in the State of the Union address last week. These four consortia have realized that there are enormous benefits of scale to making ships bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, of course, there's an externalizable cost to that, which is that if you make the ships big enough, they get stuck in the Suez Canal. But we pay those costs and they have suborned their regulators so that even though everybody who understands this stuff has for years and years been saying you need to stop making the ships bigger because they will get stuck in the Suez Canal, they are still making ships bigger and getting them stuck in the Suez Canal. And it's not just shipping, it's finance and meatpacking and cheerleading and athletic shoes. And, you know, notably for many of you, I can see eyeglasses. One company, Essilor, makes more than 50% of all the lenses in the world. They are owned by a company called Luxottica, which owns every eyewear brand you've ever heard of, except for a couple of odd internet ones. So whether that's Oliver Peoples or Bausch & Lohm or Dolce & Gabbana, uh, they're all owned by this one company. They also own every glasses store you've ever heard of, Lens Crafters, Sunglass Hut, and um, they also own the largest eyewear insurer in the world. And if anyone ever tries to resist selling to them, they uh, they just starve them out. So, you know, um, um, Oakley refused to sell to uh, Luxottica. So they just took uh, Oakley glasses out of all the major retailers and then bought them a year later uh, out of near bankruptcy for pennies on the dollar. Uh, they've raised the price of glasses a thousand percent in the last decade. And it's not just glasses and it's not just cheerleading. It's also, you know, professional wrestling. You know, there were 30 professional wrestling leagues 30 years ago. Now there's one. The billionaire who owns it has misclassified all of his workers as contractors. He took away their health care. They're all dying of their work-related injuries and begging on GoFundMe for pennies so that they can die with dignity. So none of those industries are industries that I think we would characterize as being particularly special. Maybe some of them are very structurally important. I think, you know, clearly finance, shipping, and maybe professional wrestling are all very structurally important to our civilization. Um, but uh, none of them are really characterized as being run by geniuses. And, and certainly, you know, they're not new, right? You know, the, 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 it's not that they have some cool new technology that dictates this winner-take-all structure. So I, I want to talk about one way that tech is different. Um, because it's not different in that its leaders are particularly evil or particularly smart. But it is different in this, in this one regard which is the way that network effects and switching costs play out for it. You know, if you have a kitchen mixer and it's got a proprietary peg that takes the blender attachment, 
and you've got someone else's blender attachment, you can get the blender attachment into the kitchen mixer, but you need a machine shop, right? It's hard. And you can't just like write an FAQ and publish it or make a YouTube video explaining how someone else in their kitchen, if they have the wrong mixer and attachment, can get it to work. But you know, software is Turing complete. Software is universal. And so tech not only enjoys these network effects, but tech has this intrinsic switching cost uh, uh, relief, where if we allow technologists to do their own thing, they will eventually figure out how to lower the switching costs and make them close to zero. Not least because if, if for those of you who are InfoSec practitioners, there is an attacker's advantage, right? For a firm to block interoperability, it has to make no mistakes. For a new market entrant to create interoperability, it has to find one mistake. Moreover, that firm can stockpile 20 mistakes and they can exploit the first one wait for the dominant firm to patch it and immediately roll out the second one, the third, the fourth, and the fifth. So they always have this guerrilla warfare advantage. That's particularly true where we're talking about very large firms that are trying to uh, fingerprint the conduct of adversarial interoperators versus their own users. Because if you're Facebook and you have 3 billion users, then by definition, you experience 3,000 one in a million use cases every day. Right. And the, so you're like third Sigma user is way less weird than any bot that someone is going to or way more weird rather than than any bot that someone is going to write to try and, you know, scrape people's waiting messages from Facebook and stick them in a different inbox. And, you know, we see this kind of interoperability, this reverse engineering, this guerrilla warfare as a way uh, historically that large firms that were trying to attain monopolistic dominance have had their uh, their ambitions thwarted. So back in the year 2000 or so, I was a, a, a CIO, a glorified sysadmin, and I was running these big heterogeneous networks of Macs and PCs. And um, we had a real problem, which was that uh, most of these offices would be mostly Windows uh, shops, but there would inevitably, inevitably be a few Mac users. Um, often they were designers or sound editors. Sometimes it was the boss because they wanted to run a cool PowerBook and not a, not a ThinkPad or whatever. And they had a real problem, which was that if you sent them a Word document or an Excel file or a PowerPoint, which are like the three most common files they were exchanging in those days, the Mac version of Office was so cursed that most of the time it wouldn't open it. But if it did and you, then you saved it again, no one else would ever be able to open it, maybe not even you, right? And this was a huge problem. We actually experienced this so you, to the point where I had designers where I was like, all right, I'm just going to buy you a PC and stick it next to your Mac so you can talk to everybody else. And then that got unwieldy. So then we were like, you know what? We're just going to buy like Adobe and, and Quark for this PC and stick a beefier graphics card in it and throw away your Mac, right? And that, of course, could have been the beginning of the end for Apple. Now, Steve Jobs did not go on bent knee to Bill Gates and say, hey, can you please fix this switching cost that keeps people stuck in Windows and keeps them from going to the Mac? Instead, he got some of his own staff to reverse engineer the file formats. And he released iWork, Pages, Numbers, Keynote, right? And that reads and writes those files perfectly. And a funny thing happened on the way to the rescue of Apple, which is that Microsoft, which had been devoting significant engineering resource to obfuscating those file formats and rolling out new versions every now and then so that no one could catch up with them, gave up 
went to a standards body and created XML-based common file formats, which is the X and XLSX and PPTX and DOCX. And those file formats and that standardization is how we got Google Docs and LibreOffice and all those other products that we all use every day to try and to exchange those, those Word files and those other Office files. So it's very clear that when switching costs are low, it is a hedge against monopolistic control and it allows users to have more control over how they compute. And the firms know this, right? And they understand that keeping switching costs high is to their advantage. Mm -hmm. So recently, um, the FTC unsealed a bunch of documents uh, in their antitrust case against Facebook, uh, documents they subpoenaed, internal memos. And one of them that I found very telling is a memo from the product manager for Facebook Photos to Zuckerberg, in which he says, we are going to make this product really good so that people will entrust their family photos to us. Which will, which will create a high switching cost. People aren't gonna be willing to leave behind their family photos. And that means effectively we can abuse them more and make more money. And that is explicit in the corporate strategy of all of these uh, systems. Now, I said earlier that I'm not interested in trying to improve Facebook. I don't think the answer to the machine is the machine. Every attempt that we've ever made to make big tech better, just handed it more power. When, when you deputize a company to solve the problem it created, you make it prohibitively expensive to enter the market. Because by definition, you have to be a giant company to solve the kinds of problems that giant companies create, right? If we say to giant companies, you are in charge of writing a copyright filter, that will be mandatory. Then the table stakes for entering the marketplace become, well, content ideas cost $100 million so far. Right, that's YouTube's uh, copyright filter. So that's table stakes now for entering the market and becoming a YouTube competitor. There would be no YouTube today if, if the ante was $100 million. And so there will be no YouTube competitor tomorrow if we put YouTube in charge of solving that problem. And you know, one of the things that happens when we ask these giant companies to solve these problems is that they fail. Because honestly, the problem of building a copyright filter is a fool's errand. In exactly the same way that building a harassment filter is a fool's errand or sentiment analysis software that does automatic blocking is a fool's errand. Um, and so what you end up with is a firm that can establish a capital moat by spending seven or eight figures on a, um, a kind of make busy project that doesn't actually solve the pro pro problem that we want them to solve, leaves the problem intact. And as a bonus for these large firms, it gives them a really good reason to fight interoperability because they can say, how on earth are we going to police our platform for terrorism, harassment, copyright infringement, you name it, if third parties are able to disrupt our heuristics, inject content into the stream, remove content from the stream all on their own without our control and oversight. And so over and over again, we have seen firms use uh, everything uh, from the terror regulation in the European Union uh, to even the GDPR, the copyright directive, to argue that they shouldn't be forced to open up to interoperators. And uh, that becomes a, a means by which they maintain their dominance. Okay, so if, if deputizing firms to solve the problems they create doesn't solve the problem, what will weaken big tech and make the problems that they cause less important? I think it's interop, right? It, it, it is that it is exploiting that um, uh, exploiting that that Turing completeness, that universality, that thing that allows you to just you know tear apart the office file formats and figure out how to write a parser for them. And we have interop on our horizon now. 
uh, there are mandates in the pipeline that will force giant firms to open up APIs to third parties. In the United States, there's a, a bill with strong bipartisan support called the Access Act that I think is very good that uh, got out of committee and um, is adding more sponsors by the day and is really, uh, I think, a well thought through, although not perfect piece of legislation. And in the European Union, there's the Digital Markets Act, which has a lot of things in common with it. It is also going really far. It's just gone into something called the Trilogs, which is where the European Commission, which is the bureaucracy of the European Union, the European Parliament, which is the elected representatives, and the, uh, Europe, the Council of Europe, which is representatives from the member states, all get together and, and uh, finalize legislation. It's kind of the last piece uh, on the way to the final vote. And generally, things don't get that far unless they're going to pass. So it looks like there's a really good chance of that happening. But standards can be subverted. Uh, and any of you who have ever done standards work will have experienced this. Um, standards development organizations, be they the W3C or the ITF or ISO, they are generally volunteer organizations in the sense that the people who work on the standards aren't paid by the SDO. They're paid by the member companies or nonprofits or academic institutions that buy memberships in them. And um, what that means is that large firms can pay lots of people to work on a standard, to be the chair, the co-chair, the secretary, to be the editor of the standard, to convene the meetings and literally set the agendas for them. While smaller uh, players, including nonprofits and, and um, academic institutions, they're generally playing uh, catch up. So, you know, when I'm a W3C rep, uh, it is one of 10 duties I have. And I struggle to get uh, a lawyer and an engineer to come and look at timely submissions that I'm making or help me parse the submissions that uh, other people have made. Meanwhile, if you're Facebook, and it's important to Facebook, if it matters to Facebook, or if you're Google or if you're Apple, you could have a hundred engineers backstopping you. Even if you have only one rep on the committee, you might have 10 reps on the committee, but then each of them can be backstopped by a hundred engineers, a hundred lawyers. When someone makes it, you know, you can parse a thousand pages worth of submissions from other consortium members overnight and write cogent comments on them. And you can write a thousand pages of comments and submit them, right? So the standards process can be subverted. There is an attempt within the Access Act and the DMA to try and control that. And of course, standards are sometimes good. So I don't want to write them off as impossible. I just want to uh, signpost that. And I want to say that there's another way to subvert standards, which is not on the back end when they're being developed, but on the front end after they're deployed, particularly after they're mandated. And to give you an example of how that works, I'm going to use something from Massachusetts. So in 2012, Bay Staters went to the ballot box, voted for a ballot initiative with about 80% majority to require automakers to expose diagnostic codes that moved around on the wired CAN bus within cars. Um, and uh, hiding these codes from uh, independent mechanics had been used to raise the price of getting your car serviced and to shrink the size of the independent mechanics sector. So as soon as this law was enacted, uh, the automakers then had the attacker's advantage they retooled their cars so that um, all of the data that used to go over the CAN bus now went over a wireless bus. And with systems on a chip with a software-defined radio going for under a dollar, building a wireless network within the car was really cheap, right? And so now there was this giant loophole where increasingly the, the fraction of cars that an independent mechanic could fix went down and down with every single year. 
Now, eight years later in 2020, you all got the chance to go back to the ballot box, vote again on question one. And again, with about 80%, you passed a, a new ballot initiative that said effectively, like for avoidance of doubt, we meant wireless too, right? Now it's been tied up in court since then. We're two years out. We still don't have uh, automotive right to repair in Massachusetts though we might get it. But even if we do, there might be a new malicious compliance tactic that the automaker has stockpiled. They might be able to do something else that subverts this mandate because we have the defender's disadvantage. And in the intervening eight years, lots of mechanics just gave it up, right? If you can't fix cars, then you got to change careers or go to work for one of the automakers. Lots of car owners learned that if you take your car to an independent mechanic and find time off work to drive it down and show up and wait for them to put it up on the rack and come back, that they might tell you, I'm sorry, this model is too new. We don't have diagnostic equipment for it. And investors learned that if you invest in independent mechanic shops and banks learn that if you loan money to independent mechanic shops that you're making a bad bet. And so the automakers haven't just bought themselves eight years of monopoly extraction for auto repair. They've also managed to actually chill new entrants into the market. And if they do that long enough, they can probably kill independent automotive repair. So I, I spoke earlier about adversarial interoperability, these reverse engineering guerrilla tactics. At EFF, we actually, we mostly call that uh, competitive compatibility, ComCom. Adversarial interoperability is really hard for people to say. Uh, and it doesn't abbreviate well. Uh, there's already something we call AI. So we, I, I might call this ComCom, I might call this competitive compatibility, I might call it adversarial interoperability, but, but uh, all three of them mean the same thing. And so imagine if um, competitive compatibility was in the mix here. Imagine if there was, uh, as part of the, say the ballot initiative, uh, an interoperator's defense that said, you know, so long as you're uh, fostering interoperability for independent mechanics, uh, you are not liable under copyright theories or contract theories or patent theories or uh, exotic, you know, copyright adjacent theories like anti-circumvention if you reverse engineer one of these gadgets. So like you guys and a couple of your friends or, you know, three smart MIT kids could have gone and designed a gadget with like a $5 bill of materials, had someone in Guangzhou or Shenzhen whip up like 25,000 of them sold them for $300 to every mechanic in the in Massachusetts, maybe America, maybe the world, raised capital to build ancillary services off the back of it, like car warranties, access to parts, and so on. Uh, and, um, you know, all of that, that prospect might have actually stayed the automaker's hands. Because generally speaking, large firms prefer managed risk to unmanaged risk. Now, their first preference is no risk, obviously. They can just extinguish adversarial interoperability, they will. But the last thing any large firm wants to do is go to their shareholders and say, surprise, we didn't perform the way we thought we would this quarter. I mean, we never got a better example of that than a couple of weeks ago when Facebook announced to its investors that uh, and against their expectations and for the first time in their history, they lost US users and their investors rewarded them with a $280 billion market cap haircut, the largest loss of any firm in the history of the world. Um, now that didn't just hurt Facebook at the outset, you know, where obviously the market cap is not the money they have on hand, but of course, if you're a Facebook exec, your shares are how you're getting paid, but it also hurts them in terms of their ability to hire engineers. So for the, I think it's now three years running, Facebook has missed their target to hire engineers. No one wants to work there, they're a terrible company. Um, but you know, one of the ways that they lure people in and get a discount on their wage bill 
is by offering stock grants. Because if you're a, a, a rational person who's looked at the performance of their stock over the years, a stock grant looks like free money. Well, when a stock grant starts to be a higher risk bet on your future earnings, you might require that more of your money come in cash. And so when that market cap takes that precipitous drop, 25% in one day, all of a sudden your wage bill shoots way up and it becomes even harder to hire. And then you maybe get into one of these death spirals where you need to change things to stay competitive, but you can't hire engineers. And you, because you can't hire engineers, you become less competitive, which makes you less attractive to engineers. So firms would really, generally speaking, prefer to play nice if the alternative is chaos. But of course, no one ever lost money by betting on the irrationality and hubris of tech founders. And so maybe they wouldn't, maybe they would actually continue to play games with Massachusetts right to repair. Well, if they did, you'd have a remedy. You would have a remedy that was imperfect, right? You would have to rely on reverse engineering. You'd never know if you had a complete set of diagnostic messages. They might rotate the diagnostic messages or the encryption scheme as a means of trying to um, fence out these products but you have the attacker's advantage. You can stockpile 20 vulnerabilities in their diagnostic protocol. And every time they do something to their diagnostic protocol, every one of their licensed mechanics has to go through an update process and then spend hours troubleshooting. And people who rely on the uh, auto dealer to get their car fixed, start to learn that when you go to the auto dealer for a fix, they sometimes tell you, sorry, Kia or Toyota or Ford just pushed an update and uh, we can't get it to work, and it might be 15 hours before our admins figure out how to get all of our diagnostic tools updated, and we can't fix your car until that's sorted out. And so you do get this stable equilibrium, I think, where by and large firms behave themselves, and if they don't, well, then you get uh, this remedy, and the remedy actually helps regulators. So the, if, if um, you have a mandate that says uh, firms must provide an API, and firms do things to nerf the API, like say Facebook says, all right, we're gonna provide you with this API, but we're gonna for completely unrelated reasons, change our data structures in a way that just happens by a horrible coincidence to make the API useless for our competitors. Well, one of the ways that you can evaluate whether or not the API needs to be addressed is by examining the conduct of those competitors. If they've all switched to ComCom, if they're all writing bots now and no one's touching the API, that is a good factual basis for a regulator to proceed from in order to say, Facebook, you've done something bad with the API. So that's adversarial interoperability. And I think that adversarial interoperability combined with mandatory interoperability creates a kind of two-part epoxy that's both flexible and strong. And um, the hard part is getting adversarial interoperability because uh, there is a real thicket of laws that stand between us and adversarial interoperability. Reforming all of them is a long project. We should do it. You know, Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is really bad news. That's the thing that says that bypassing an access control for a copyrighted work uh, is a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. We're currently suing the US government to overturn that law. Our clients are uh, Bunny Huang from MIT, who you may know, the, done lots of great things, notably the Xbox hack, but more recently he's been building open source hardware, and Matthew Green, the eminent cryptographer from, uh, from Johns Hopkins. And so we're, we're currently uh, appealing uh, the last round of decisions that we expected to not go our way. It was kind of a formality, and, and we're, we're going to court for this. 
But, you know, again, this is a long project and we need relief now. We can't wait until every one of these laws has been reformed. So what can we do in the interim? Well, one of the things we can and should do is change our procurement rules. No level of government should buy any technology without a binding covenant from the manufacturer not to invoke laws to block interoperators. Not because those firms don't deserve to make as much money as they can, but because as customers spending our money on our behalf, they shouldn't be suckers. This is something with a very long history in, in US procurement rules. Lincoln's Union Army wouldn't buy rifles from companies unless they agreed to standardize tooling and ammunition for like completely obvious and good reasons that once again, we can see playing out in the theater of war in the former Soviet Union, where there's one of the, one of the major tactics that people are, are threatening to use to neutralize one side or the other is taking away the parts that they need to fix their stuff and the software updates that they need to keep it running. Right. That there needs to be more than one source for all of these things. And this should be at every level of government. Like no local school board should have procured Google Classroom without a binding covenant from Google not to block third party um, evaluation tools and textbooks and all the other suites of things that we might use to uh, expand the distance education experience. And, you know, no car in a government motor pool, state, federal, local should be uh, bought from a manufacturer unless they promise not to block third-party repairs, third-party parts, and so on. And certainly in aerospace uh, and U.S. military procurement, this is like an area that is so ripe for being fixed. Um, it turns out that the aerospace industry uses a lot of single-source parts, so little little widgets that are in uh, you know planes and missiles that only one company makes. And some private equity supervillains figured out that if you bought all of those companies and rolled them up that you could on the one hand offer them to the primary suppliers like boeing and lockheed at a fraction of the cost of manufacture to encourage the promiscuous use of them in all products but then sell them into the part stream to uncle sucker at like ten thousand percent markups and that is in fact how public money is being spent today in the u.s aerospace industry to, to buy from these people so we should just have procurement rules because it is prudent public policy and speaking of public policy, states can make public policy. States across the union have lots of rules that say in their constitutions that say certain things cannot be in contracts because they are against public policy. Like there's pretty good research that says that the reason that Route 128 stagnated as a tech center and Silicon Valley took off as a tech center is because the California state constitution prohibits non-compete agreements, which means that if you're a smart person who goes to a company with a good idea that's run by a bad person that you don't have to then exit the industry for three years while your non-compete runs out. Good people and good ideas can come together. That's something that is very old in the history of Silicon Valley. Uh, the very first uh, semiconductor company, uh, Shockley, was founded by the Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist who figured out how to make transistors out of uh, silicon instead of gallium arsenide. That's why it's not gallium arsenide valley. He also either just suddenly like revealed himself to be a colossal asshole or maybe had a stroke, no one's really sure. But immediately upon founding the company, he uh, devoted his life to eugenics and took all of his Nobel Prize money and turned it into cash bounties that he gave to women of color to have them sterilized and spent most of his time touring the country arguing with biologists about eugenics. Uh, he became very paranoid. He was a very bad manager. Uh, Eight of his top managers, the treacherous eight, went off and founded Fairchild Semiconductor, 
And then a bunch of their senior managers, a group mostly of Hungarians, quit and founded a company you may have heard of called Intel. And none of them were bound by non-compete. So we could introduce uh, state constitutional reforms that say just in this state, you can't use contractual matters, you can't use terms of service to block interoperators. Um, and then, you know, as these companies are going through antitrust hell, it's a long process. Remember, AT&T took 69 years. They will periodically cry uncle. That's the pattern for antitrust enforcement. And they'll say, we would like a settlement, please. And when they offer those settlements, we can say, great, you're going to get a special master, just like a lawyer who provides adult supervision to firms that have shown themselves to be habitual misbehaviors, misbehaviors rather. And that special master is going to have to greenlight any lawsuits you bring against rivals to make sure they're not pretext for shutting down adversarial interoperability. So uh, that's nearly the whole talk, but I want to touch on one more thing, which is the question of privacy and more broadly, digital human rights. And I started this talk by saying we are, this country has an enormous deficit in that it does not have a, a federal privacy right with a private right of action. It's a huge problem and a national embarrassment. And I think that this is the key to answering the privacy question, which goes like this. What if Facebook has to provide an API and a Chinese state-owned industry or a successor to Cambridge Analytica uses that API to suck up a bunch of Facebook users' data and abuse it? And that is, in fact, a real problem. And it's something that Facebook raises a lot, usually in the context of saying, you have no idea how many of these attacks we foil every day. And you know, when I go and talk about this stuff at, say, DEF CON, I'll meet security engineers who work for these big firms who will say, like, I spend all day keeping you safe from actors, threat actors who are so bad you can't even imagine them. And, and I agree, they really do. But there is one threat actor that their bosses will not pay them to defend me against, and that's their bosses. Apple will defend you against all comers, except for itself, when it decides to remove all of its privacy tools from its Chinese app store. And Facebook will defend you against people who want to invade your privacy, unless it's Facebook. And Google will defend you against deceptive ads unless someone paid Google to run them. Right. So over and over again, we see the inadequacy of having companies that are hopelessly conflicted make the final call about what behavior is and isn't allowed uh, in respect of their users and the, the, the conduct that their users choose to engage in to augment their systems. And the way to resolve this is to have democratically accountable privacy law that stands alone and that is a law that we don't just apply to new interoperators, new market entrants, whether they're startups or even large firms entering a new sector or, you know, co-ops or nonprofits, or just, you know, you were talking about how you folks just like figured out that you had this affinity and that you could meet every week and you've got a lot of technical chops. And some of you probably know someone with like an extra server in a data center. You might stand up your own Facebook alternative that interoperates with Facebook and lets you leave and stay in touch with your friends. It wouldn't just apply to all of you. It would apply to Facebook because that's what we really need. And we need that more broadly. Wherever you hear people talk about online harms, be they harassment or um, identity theft or uh, what have you, all of those online harms belong in federal privacy laws or federal online human rights laws and not in the private domain of corporate boardrooms where they decide what the law should and shouldn't say. So that's the talk. And, and it's about this kind of esoteric game theoretical way that I think we can actually, without waiting 69 years to break up Facebook, actually take back our online culture 
from big tech to to turn our backs on a web made of five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four and actually build something as diverse and weird and amazing as us. All right, Jacob, I see you have a com uh, question. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you so much. That was an amazing talk. Uh, thank you. I'll provide one example of something I'm working on, actually doing adversarial interoperability, but I didn't know it was called that. Jacob, Good. Uh, I was literally going to, to start the Q&A by asking you to tell him about your project. Tell okay, me about sure. it. Tell me about sure. it. Okay, so my dad is a lawyer in New Jersey, and we'll do a little bit of background because there are whole sorts of different problems all over the place. One example is subprime auto lending, where there are these uh -huh. companies that say, of course, we'll sell you this used car for way more than it's worth. Look, this is the monthly payment. You'll be fine. Um, then the people don't have the credit scores, can't pay. And then they're like, by the way, we had a tracker in that. And we yeah, we kill switched it. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Except the issue is if you're a lawyer in New Jersey, um, these are difficult records they don't have to pay you. Right. And if you can't find, um, I'm sure there are other details in glossing over, but there are problems like that. And if you can't find a lot of them and do a bunch of cases all at once, then it's a harder thing to do. It turns out that the New Jersey court website that only lawyers have access to to see case data, which is reasonable, doesn't work properly. So for example, if I look for Credit Acceptance Corporation, it might say we've captured 300 results. Here are all of them from 1980 something to present day in no particular order. And if you actually have the data, like I scraped and collected in a proper way, you'd be like, oh shit, there were 600 of them last year. Right. So it's basically like by uh, exploiting poor decisions in the website, you can get a better database and now search it and deal with all the typos and things. And that data will hopefully be useful. So that, that's sort of the um, adversarial interop situation I'm currently working in. Um, so I have one question about that that can be expanded more broadly, mm -hmm. which is how the hell can I do this type of thing without getting a felony somehow, like you mentioned before. Like, for example, the lawyers are allowed to scrape their own data. It's right. use at your own risk or something. So hmm. I can't have it, but I can go to a lawyer and say, hey, look, I'll get these things. But right. is, is there sort of a general way I can tell what stuff is safe for me to improve and what stuff isn't? You should send an email to info at EFF.org, which unlike everyone else's info at is actually staffed by a person. Her name is Haley. She's really good. She will figure out which lawyer to talk to. We have a client who does what you do federally, a guy named Carl Malamud. Uh, and he's done it in a bunch of state contexts as well. And we went, we went to, well, the Supreme Court denied cert. So we went nearly the Supreme Court over Georgia. So Georgia has these state law books that are um, the annotated code, which is the code plus all the, all the annotations that describe what the actual code means, what the law means. And um, they have an exclusive arrangement with a publisher who asserts a copyright and there is no copyright in law. And so uh, Carl, you know, scanned it, scraped it, typed it up, put it back online for free. And the, the Georgia sued him and it went through the appellate division. We won. Um, he mostly he takes on standards bodies because there's a lot of incorporation by reference uh, of standards. You know, the the plumbing code of like East Pigs Knuckle, Arkansas will be the American Association of Plumbers version, you know, 9.3. 
And then it costs you $1,000 to find out what your plumbing code is, which means that if a plumber shows up and says, I'm doing this, it's up to code, it costs you $1,000 to find out if it's true. And so Carl has argued um, successfully that once something is incorporated by reference into statute, it is no longer copyrightable material. And so he has republished all of those codes, uh, safety codes mostly. So he's a, he's a, a, a great guy. Uh, he's facing, I think, still a million dollars liability in Germany for doing this in Germany, and he's being sued in India, and he's he's uh, he's quite a gadfly. Um, and I'd be happy to introduce you to him as well. I'm I'm uh, doctoracraphound.com, craphound like poop and dog, uh, and uh, I'll I, I'm happy to introduce you to him. And you should email info at eff.org because I mean I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think that those terms of service are enforceable. If you're talking about filings, court filings, they're not copyrightable, right? I mean, there might be terms of service about what you can and can't do with the website, but there's nothing about what you can and can't do with the data. As far as I know, I'm not a lawyer. Okay, um, thank you. Carl, Carl worked with Aaron Swartz, who you, whose story you may know. Um, they scraped PACER, which is the federal database of court records where they it was supposed to run on a cost uh, a, a cost recovery basis and it was netting 150 million dollars a year um, selling access to public domain documents and some public spirited hackers built a thing called recap where if you were running as a browser plugin and if you downloaded a document no one else ever, ever downloaded before and paid your 10 cents for it it would then upload it to a recap repo and if you went to download a document, it would first check to see whether there was a free version in the recap repo and then stick it in, in, in then do a, like a replacement. And there was a moment in which the libraries had this pilot program where they were offering free Pacer access and Aaron built a crawler and downloaded a million dollars worth of Pacer docs. And what they immediately found out was that these Pacer docs had not been properly redacted by the court clerks. And there was things like the home addresses of people who uh, were stalking survivors, people's social, like identity theft victims, social security numbers and home addresses and phone numbers. And so they went to the court clerks and they said, like, you have not done, like they went to the DOJ and they said, you, you shouldn't have this. It shouldn't cost 10 cents to find out uh, what the yeah. home address is of someone who's been stalked or the social security numbers. Like, you know, there are lots of problems with charging for access to the law, but but this stuff just shouldn't be in the thing there was juveniles people who uh, children who'd been sexually assaulted whose names hadn't been redacted from the record just all kinds of terrible stuff uh and they got really angry at carl and aaron <laughs> for pointing out that this is the case and i th i think whenever i hear about um a state law repository where they're putting limits on republication and when they're limiting who can access it my immediate assumption is that they know that the redaction isn't very good and you know that they have a, a redaction debt where even if they fix their redaction practices today you know they've got back to the alexander hamilton days of new jersey you know to go back and fix right hey jake uh, i think that's exactly uh, right oh Corey, who your dad is and the story about redaction uh i'm, I'm not sure what you're referencing i don't know what you mean man um jacob's dad is the lawyer for oh okay yeah so my 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 Jacob, oh, you're mute yourself. Sorry, sorry for muting. My grandfather was more of it, but he's actually representing uh, Abu Zubaydah at, at the Guantanamo Bay thing. So they've got a lot oh, of shit. stuff with 
redaction that maybe is a discussion for another time. I don't want to derail it too much, but wow, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. something. Jacob's dad is maybe the world's expert on best practice for how to find problems with redaction and <laughs> has pioneered ways to get teams of people to look at separately redacted copies of the same document and then take the union of the unredacted text and has discovered all sorts of interesting things this way. Nicely done. Full circle, you're exactly right about New Jersey not redacting things properly. That's yeah. one of the things I've been thinking about because I'm like, wow, it'd be really great to publish these things, but that has its own its own host of problems, but uh, I'll reach out after and leave space. Sure. I'm, I'm just yeah. reading an advanced copy of Andy Greenberg's next book, which is about how the feds busted Silk Road and then its successors. And over and over again, it's things like redaction failures. Like they get, they, they get the alt username of the admin of some giant notorious marketplace and they search for that alt username. And then they find him on like some other forum complaining about customer service somewhere. And they get like, he posts a lawyer letter and it says complaint on behalf of, and it's got his real name next to it. <laughs> and he's redacted his name everywhere else, but not the bold title across the top. Redaction is hard. I've screwed up redaction. I mean, I shouldn't laugh. So, well, there are any other questions? You know, I know you guys have given me an hour on a, on a Saturday afternoon. So evening, I guess, where you are. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure to chat with you. Uh, oh yeah, Jacob, go ahead. I'll, I'll ask one more. Um, so there's this interesting thing where there are places that have tried to make interop work really fantastically, right? Like one example is GNU. And compared to Apple, I wouldn't say they're doing too hot. And it does seem like there is benefit to Apple saying, oh, we have all of these silos and we can actually make for a really fantastic user experience and have enough funds to, to build that. So like. Is there any sort of, have, have there been examples of a Facebook that wanted to do really fantastic interop and then got killed by Facebook? Is, is there a reason those big companies with good interop don't exist or I can't think of them? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I would say that um, Apple, uh, Apple's smoothness has developed some jaggy edges as well, that um, some of what app, what, what made Apple uh, such a well-run little ecosystem is that they didn't have technology debt because they refactored, right? And then they accumulated technology debt and it got worse. I mean, you know, anyone who tries to uh, make some of those like sprawling apps, like they split their media app, they split iTunes out into a bunch of apps and it's each of those are still kind of hard and have the, all this legacy formats they have to support. And it's, it's just not great. Um, I guess what I would say is that the historic pattern is that you have dominant firms uh, that eventually get reverse engineered out of dominance, that someone makes switching costs. And then that new firm may be proprietary or, or will always be a mix of proprietary and non-proprietary. Like a lot, of, a lot of what Apple does is non-proprietary free and open, right? Uh, and then they have this proprietary stuff around the edges. And then over time, someone reverse engineers it and, and makes an interoperable version. And then you, you kind of get this cycle that goes. And what interrupted that cycle was not perfecting anti-reverse engineering, but rather uh, creating, you know, using monopoly rents to, to mobilize uh, the law to, to prevent interop. Um, and so now we're kind of we're kind of left trying to back out of this cul-de-sac that we found ourselves in. Like it's the it's the least worst option creating these mandates. 
You know, EFF has spent 30 years fighting technology mandates. It is a strange place for us to be in advocating for them. And the position we actually advocate for, I should have mentioned before, is, is a little different from the statutory language. And we, we still might win these battles, which is that we think that um, the committee that is going to make the standard should first make a set of requirements, as you do, uh, and that uh, the law should say you either have to adopt the API that they standardize or build any other API that satisfies those requirements. And it's harder to administer, right? You would have to actually make a determination about whether the requirements were satisfied. And obviously requirements as they stand at the start of standardization are not the same as the requirements once the standard is cooked. Like you might say in the requirement, um, you must transmit and receive avatars for users. And then the standard might define an avatar for a user as like a bitmap, an SVG, a JPEG or a, or a PNG uh, of up to 32 bits deep and up to a thousand pixels square, right? Mm -hmm. So that might be the actual standard, but the requirement as it's, as it's written might allow you to implement the avatar interchange with like a two pixel by two pixel, one bit black and white image, right? And you could say, oh, I've satisfied the requirement. The requirement just says this. So it would need some finesse. You'd have to go back after you cook the standard and revise the requirements to reflect the standards um, uh, more crisp approach to some of the questions that get explored through the standardization process. Uh, and, you know, I think that, that that kind of is the best of both worlds where you create a safe harbor where you say to firms, if you don't want to roll the dice on whether or not your your solution will be considered satisfactory, just use the standard. But if you if you do, if you if there's something you really want to do, then okay, you can you can make a requirement satisfying alternative, and then we'll have uh, an administrator checks it out. Daniel, you had a question. Hi. So um, first, have you heard of the Solid Project, and what do you think about it? Kind of, sort of related to what you were talking about, but with the idea of Solid being there's one standard that the government enforces everyone to follow. Hmm. Well, standard uh, solid is an interesting idea. I, I, I have not audited its code or tried to build a solid instance. And the one person I know who has, which is a cryptographer named Ben Laurie, who's the guy who built certificate transparency and he's on, um, he's part of Shmoo and he, he, uh, he, he, what else has he done? He open SSL, uh, and so on. So as someone who I really trust, he looked at it and he said, it's kind of a dumpster fire, uh, actually from a kind of, uh, both decentralization and security perspective, it's got a bunch of dependencies on projects that aren't being supported and so on. But like stipulate a notional version of, of um, solid that is truly decentralized and does have a kind of cleaner code base. Uh, what do I think of that as an approach? I, I think that unless there is uh, some means by which you can bridge existing services into solid and out again, and that needn't be a mandate. It could also be legalized adversarial interoperability that it's going to suffer from switching costs, right? So I, I think you, you need that one missing step. It's a bit like the Fediverse, right? I love Mastodon. I use a Mastodon instance every day. I have a great time on it, but I haven't switched from Twitter to Masto because uh, I have to leave Twitter to switch to Masto. If I could use Masto as my Twitter client, 
but also be in the Fediverse and have a foot in both. Use it as like a a, a multi-homed client for more for two different protocols and mix and match them as I needed. Then I would probably resign Twitter and just use Mastodon. In fact, I'd probably just host a Mastodon instance because a couple of times I've been brigaded by people who false reported me and got me kicked off Twitter, and it's a pain in the ass, right? So I would love to to actually be the master of my own social media presence, but without that. Uh, it doesn't matter how good Mastodon is without without something that reduces the switching costs, without an interoperability layer, um, it's going to remain a fringe project. And there are a couple of million Fediverse users, but they're, you know, a drop in the bucket. There's 100 million Twitter users and 3 billion Facebook users. So, you know, they're they're not even in the same order of magnitude. Ori, what do you think of all this Web3 nonsense? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that's another very long story. I'm, I'm I have watch this on a recording. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'd like to say thank you or until later. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've uh, kind of planted my flag for that. So I'll tell you the thing I like about Web3 is when I listen to Web3 advocates, mm -hmm. a lot of the things they say they want to do sound great to me, right? They want to abolish big tech. They want to devolve control out to the periphery and so on. I think that there are, I'm skeptical of the method. I think that the system design of Web3, the way that they run projects that are supposed to provision public goods, which is really the thing that we're talking about here, is to capitalize them by appealing to people's uh, speculative instincts. They, the, you know, It's not just a governance token, it's also an asset that you can expect to appreciate over time. And um, that uh, is, I think, counter to the provision of public goods. That I think that it, it it over even the short term, but definitely over the long term, produces this split between solidaristic impulses that are behind the provision of public goods and the individualistic gain that is uh, intrinsic to speculative stuff. And I think a lot of the rug pulls and whatnots that you see, the scams that you see in Web three, are the result of this mismatch between a solidaristic project that uses appeals to individual. Uh, gain. I think that um, economically, uh, the cryptocurrency is a problem. I think that um, smart contracts have two really significant problems besides being unregulated securities, which is that they're unregulated securities with all the deficits of regular securities that make us want to regulate them, but more. So one of the things that we don't like about securities that makes us want to regulate them is that they're complex. You have to be able to read a prospectus and understand it. Otherwise, you can get ripped off. You're the, you're the sucker at the poker table. A smart contract, you have to not only be able to parse the, the prospectus, you also have to be able to read the source. And the Venn intersection of people who can read source and parse uh, prospecti, it's like it's a sphincter. You know, it's this tiny little narrow slice of the world, certainly nothing like the, all the people who are um, getting involved in these smart contracts and becoming counterparties to them. And then the other thing about smart contracts is that they're self-operating and brittle. And this is something that um, is familiar to anyone who studied the great financial crisis. So in the run-up to the GFC, you had the uh, creation of these unregulated securities that they call financial innovation. And the problem with these 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 securities is that they were really uh, they had a lot of leverage, so they were high risk, and they had a lot of complexity. And one of the ways that the people who dealt in these and that the people who bought and sold them tried to cabin that risk was by making them very rigid, 
So uh, common provision in these securities was that uh, a binding covenant by both parties not to use bankruptcy courts. Um, so the, the, you'd always be on the hook for the debt. And that is a thing that solves the problem of insecurity as between two counterparties. But systemically, it means that if there's like a margin call or if a, the value of a commonly used collateral uh, drops because there's a market bobble, everybody has to do a mass sell-off in order to um, to make those margin calls, in order to, to avoid bankruptcy court and, and make the margin call, they call them suicide notes, right? In the in the aftermath, they said that these these um, binding provisions, these brittle provisions, were suicide notes. They 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 required you to shoot yourself in the head if something went below a certain threshold, and they blew up the whole system. Well, smart contracts don't even require that you liquidate your assets right if you have a smart contract that says and, and a lot of them do the collateral for this loan has to be 80 percent of the loan and if it draws below 80 percent of the loan the the loan is liquidated then as soon as the the collateral drops below that lever level the loan is liquidated and then that asset enters the pool of things for sale that cause the collateral to dip and then even better collateralized loans start to fail so you have these systemic problems that ripple out across the whole thing. So brittleness, leverage, and of course, there's a lot of leverage in these systems, right? Uh, by design, you know, coin issuance is a form of leverage. And so you have tons of leverage, you have tons of complexity, you have tons of brittleness, and that all three of those make for a financial hazard that I, that I think we should be rightly concerned about. And then finally, like everything that, that um, you know, coiners say will mitigate this, involves doing things that just make cryptocurrency into uh web 2 but more expensive and dangerous so like one of the ways that you could avert um these uh contractual uh cascades is to introduce an oracle right a referee who has to like you so you got a multi-party signature and the referee is a third party who's like an actuary or a fiduciary or something and they have to like tick a box before the liquidation happens well, like if you trust that person not to tick the box, why don't you just get them to run the server, right? Like just run a permissioned blockchain, which requires, you know, no compute power. You can run it on seven Raspberry Pis instead of on all these computers all around the world. And if you don't trust that person not to tick that box when they should, then you don't have a solution to this problem, right? You have made this person into someone who can subvert your smart contract, but you don't trust them. Right, so that you know, by definition, now your smart contract is not something we should we should invest in. So I think for all of those reasons, it's a problem. But I want to return to what I said at the beginning, which is that I like the things they say, and so I want to figure out how we can get the people who believe the good parts of this, right, who believe in decentralization and fairness and community and so on, and get them to like start thinking about the fact that they have already conceded that they have to have centralized nodes in their otherwise decentralized network and say, okay, if we're going to do that, why don't we just like have prudent financial regulation be one of those centralized nodes and, you know, get rid of all the scams and the froth. Like Buterin himself just said, like, I want to, I want to crash. I want a crypto crash because I can't get anything done in my project, which I think is a serious and above board project because everyone is distracted by the scams. I want to clear out the scams, right? So, you know, when you have like the, the progenitor and sort of benevolent dictator of the second biggest cryptocurrency saying we need a crash, something's really wrong. Corey, this was fantastic. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Us. We really appreciate your time.
Um, if people want to reach out to you, should they tweet? Yeah, just drop me an email. Email you? Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Hey. As you know, I'm a fast email answerer. Okay. Well, we all right. all appreciate your time. Talk to you guys later. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much.